Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before I get started, let me just apologize for any recording issues uh, on this or previous episodes. Unfortunately, there is no perfect way of recording online. Um, it does tend to have some breakups or some syncing issues. My, the current vendor I deal with does a pretty good job, but sometimes there is a problem. Now with that, let's get on with the show. So today on the show, I have David Watchell. David Watchell is the CEO of Responsive AI. David is a Stanford graduate in artificial intelligence and Responsive I originally started off as a robo-advisor utilizing artificial intelligence as a means of rebalancing and doing other good things for clients' portfolios. But since then, they've evolved into a company that tries to service advisors and help them build better practices through the use of artificial intelligence in their practices. So with that, here is David. So welcome, David. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for taking the time. No problem. Absolutely. So David of Responsive AI, tell us about Responsive AI. Sure. Well, those of us tracking uh, wealth tech know that digital is a big story and it's expected to reach 4.6 trillion by 2022. And that's a a rate of 68% CAGR per year. Also in a recent survey on Bloomberg, 56% of respondents are open to Google, Apple, or Facebook and such providing wealth management. So there's a clear and pressing question for wealth managers about how to adapt for success. And Responsive has a pretty straightforward, clear thesis on that. And that thesis is that wealth is built on trust. And our clients will trust us when we serve them well, and they feel taken care of, and when they trust our judgment. So we can achieve that with two basic things. One is service excellence with technology that aligns the team to client experiences and outcomes and then actionable insights. So the ability to provide meaningful and valuable advice through deeper client understanding. That's our basic value right there. Okay, excellent. So David, tell me about your history, your personal history and how you came to be in the spot and the history of Responsive. Yeah, I studied AI at Stanford back around the turn of the century before everybody became an AI expert, which was great. Um, I got to study study with people like Andrew Ng and, and Marissa Meyer. And after that, I went into quant finance for some time, consulting, building stock selection models, uh, macroeconomic models. And an old buddy that I, I started consulting with and I, you know, around the time that the, ro- the first wave of robo-advisors came out, we, you know, we sort of had our own thesis about robo-advisors. We decided to start responsive as a direct-to-client robo-advisor. And we rapidly realized that, A, we didn't want to run sort of a sales-focused wealth management shop. We didn't want to spend time on marketing direct to clients and that our skills are best deployed to building enterprise software. So we rapidly pivoted to being a B2B hybrid advisor software. And we started sort of, we went to that market, I'd say about 15 months ago. And just this week, we've signed contracts with around $10 billion of of, uh, private wealth management. So exciting time for us. Excellent. So... Given that you have AI background, tell us about how AI is being applied to robo-advisory in this capacity in this instance. Yeah, so there's really a question about how can we provide the client with better level of service and ultimately better outcomes. And that's a question of 
sort of starting to take some of the cognitive load from the advisor or to enhance their ability to identify opportunities and risk for the client. So um, what our AI looks at is identifying sort of aspects of who the client is or where they are in their life that can be acted on to help both the client themselves and the enterprise serving the client. So can we discover things like, is the client at risk of redeeming in the next 90 days? Or did they just go through a life event that, that changes the nature of, of their financial plan? Also, is, do they have a you know, hidden capacity for extra savings? So we're sort of backing off of the pie chart and the spreadsheet and the familiar line graphs that we all know from financial planning. We think that's important. But we think what's more important is, you know, when an advisor is serving 200, 300, 400, and maybe in the future, a thousand clients, how can we get them to focus on the right client at the right time to provide the right advice? And you're harvesting all this information from what sources? We're just looking at the client's full um, cash flows and balance sheets. And we're also working with a partner in the US on the ability to sort of suss out the client's sort of psychographic profile from social information. Interesting. So you're taking data aggregation, social information, guessing uh, portfolio behavior, and you're melding that into kind of a risk model around the client and the interactions within. Yeah, I'd say it's less of a risk model and more of a model for determining when and how to serve the client. So there's different kinds of insights that are going to come from the client's entire financial life and personality. And then you want to sort of be able to, you know, at the very least, provoke the advisor to make contact and gather information if, if it's unclear what the next course of action is. So something Accenture talks about as next best action in the hybrid mm-hmm. advisor model. Interesting. So you said you just think the number of contracts, and you may not be able to tell us who they are, but in terms of the enterprise vendors you're dealing with, who are you, who are you appealing to at this point? Um, I mean, well, we're, the contracts we've signed have been with businesses that manage between 500 million and 3 billion. But we're certainly having conversations with tier one institutions all over the world and asset managers that manage really big numbers, like a trillion dollars. So there's a lot of interest in what we're doing with interest you'd recognize. Fair enough. And you're clearly not able to talk about. <laughs> oh, you know, we just, fair enough. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to kiss and tell in the early stages, right? Fair enough. Fair enough. So it's interesting. So what precipitated that, that pivot in, in uh, your mindset from moving from a consumer facing robo to kind of the AI driven, the AI driven side of this for enterprise? I think a lot of it came from our respect for what traditional businesses do, our respect for what traditional advisors do. Um, they carry a heavy load and it's a very complex, it's a complex job for the advisor themselves. And it's a complex sort of a battleship for the enterprise that, that's delivering that service. And so for us, we see that robo-advisor is kind of like, this. it's a great, simple wealth management service level, I think for an entry-level client. So part of it was identifying an opportunity in the middle and upper markets to take some of the learning and then other learning on top of that and apply that to sort of mass affluent and high net worth. Um, and the other part of it was we just didn't think that the robo-advisor model really, it doesn't serve the client totally. And so for us, it's just a bigger, more complex problem. It's a chance to offer more leverage through technology, more leverage through analytics for software. So for us, it's also a more exciting problem to solve. How do we help human advisors serve in more complex situations? 
It's interesting because, I mean, you know, the early days of robo-advisors, a lot of it was seen as, uh, you know, direct competition with advisors in general. But more and more, every robo-advisor or everyone who's gotten that space has realized that, you know what, there is definitely a human element or advisor element or a lot of service provided by those advisors that you can't just automate away. And it's interesting to see how a lot of companies have come to that realization and kind of pivoted towards enabling us, which I'm appreciative of. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are. So uh, I'm looking at your team list here, and I got to tell you, it's it's very impressive. I mean, you have a very very smart bunch of people working with you. Clearly, oh, I lucked out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got to be more than luck. I mean, it's uh, you have several people there with with experience in neuroscience and not just finance, but I mean yourself at Stanford. I got to tell you, it's, it's it's one of the most impressive startup teams I've seen in this country. So. Congrats on that. In general, the you, you say you're, you're, you're talking to a global audience thus far. How much of your audience thus far has been Canadian-centric versus international? Or where do, you, where do you see your market is evolving in general? I'd say, I mean, you know, in the first little while, we, we talked extensively to Canada. The Canadian institutions and, and Canadian culture has a specific way of looking at innovation, which is very consensus-driven and has some geographic specificity. I find if you're on one side of the Rocky Mountains, you're taken more seriously than if you're on the other. But I think... <laughs> no one takes people in BC seriously? Is that what you're I, saying? I, you know, I don't want to make a vast generalization, but I think we spend more time developing international markets than we do Canadian markets. But we've taken a lot mm-hmm. of calls with, again, the, the portfolio managers and the, and the smaller shops. And we like those businesses in Canada because they're smaller, they're feeling market pressures more, they're more motivated to sort of act quickly. And I think I dare say that the small managers are more client focused in reality than just in terms of lip service than a lot of the larger institutions. Well, I think it's a pretty good. I will dare to uh, to agree with you on that standpoint. <laughs> But yeah, no, we've had exciting conversations in Southeast Asia, in the broader Middle East region, in Europe, and certainly uh, down in the Valley. And to get back to your your note about how there was sort of this first wave of sort of disruption fear or disruption hype around robo-advisors, in a way, you know, a lot of people are bored of robo-advisors, they're bored of that whole story. We think that story is just beginning. And I think at the same time, while there's been a revelation that, that human advisors aren't going away... I think a lot of organizations and people have hit the snooze button on digital because we've had a bull market. And when it's, when all boats are rising, there's assets stick around. So our, our thesis is that during the next market event, there's going to be the way hype always happens. Too fast at first, too slow, and then fast. So um, we're really excited yeah. for the coming years for wealth tech because we think there's going to be kind of a feeding frenzy, both in terms of the need for services like ours and for new ideas around wealth in general. Interesting. Now, I mean, I do have some experience with what you, some of the stuff you're talking about. I mean, I've been I've seen demos of um, you know, the likes of Salesforce talking, talking about their their artificial intelligence implementations, and I've seen the uh, what some of the stuff that they've done at Watson with IBM. So, I mean, those are very specific large enterprise verticals that basically you have to do a full deployment of their solution. Are you kind of looking as being kind of a neutral party solution? be able to plug into whatever systems they have and, and work off whatever infrastructure they have in place already? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to come out and, and make a strong statement that 2017 and 2018 were definitely the years of fake news. And that goes for AI. <laughs> that goes for AI at small startups, but it also goes for AI at big old businesses that have built mm-hmm. a piece of core technology and they're trying to sell it horizontally as the all-seeing, all-dancing miracle thing like so watson can like it can predict what i'm thinking tomorrow and and make me breakfast but the reality there and i think this is the reality that a lot of large institutions need to look at is 
do they really want to pay Accenture and Deloitte millions of dollars to recommend IBM mm-hmm. to them to pay IBM what are really consulting dollars to sort of build a custom solution around a technology? Yeah. And I'd say where we're different is our technology is only for wealth management, serving mass affluent and high net worth clients. And it's it's focused around that from a methodology point of view for how we're actually doing the data science. It's focused on that from the domain representation. And it's focused on that from a vertically integrated platform that has a research studio on one end and client service on the other. So we watched a lot of our talking points show up on IBM's website. So <laughs> I'd like to see their product demoed. <laughs> so that that's kind of it. I, I did. I will say that I found it a little bit yeah. narrow in terms of what it was doing, but overall, you know, early stages. So I am going to sign up for your demo next, <laughs> just to compare. So I mean, I get what you're saying. You're talking about a, a pure industry play. The institutional learning surrounding just servicing that niche is going to be far greater than anyone who's trying to go broad across all industries. I totally get that. And frankly, there's given that you're you're an AP, you have powerful APIs. There's nothing stopping people from plugging into those systems in the future with your product as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, what I'm really doing is I'm just challenging the idea that an organization that's serving a million different verticals a million different ways is really going to come up with the best solution. I'm just challenging that as, as <laughs> the monolith of that idea, you know, and I, I think that's why startups exist because they have a specific point of view on a specific problem that they're solving a specific way. Great. It makes a lot of sense. You can get uh, best, you can't get best in class at everything, but you can get best in class if you're focusing on yeah, one thing. And, and you see a lot, and even in the thinking out there right now, people are talking about vertical sp- specific integrated solutions. And I think that's really going to be the great part about AI is people who focus on solving specific problems in specific domains rather than creating the all-seeing space jazz platforms that, that are going to do everything for you. Space jazz is yeah, that, awesome. Well, you just see the marketing and it's just, you know, they've got a robot like holding his chin, thinking really hard. And dude, it's <laughs> as somebody who actually went to school for it and seeing the accountants having such expertise on it is, man... <laughs> <laughs> Again, only about, yeah, once the marketing people get a hold of you, you're like, no, that's not what it does. So um, I'm looking at some of the talking points you have on your website, and there's a couple of very interesting areas. I mean, there's the obvious stuff in terms of, that you, well, not the obvious, the stuff that you mentioned already in terms of taking in multiple channels worth of data and creating better understanding and implementation and creating that push of, for the next most important action to the client. But there's a couple of other things you talk about here in terms of enterprise governance. I mean, that you, can you speak a little bit to your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's simple low-hanging stuff that I think other platforms provide around governing workflows, governing exceptions, governing the best way to deal with day-to-day operations. There's a larger question for bigger organizations around governing different kinds of behaviors. So Invesco, large asset manager, I think has the average you know, savings to income of around 6.3% and Fidelity has it somewhere around 8%. So there's a question for how, how does a trillion dollar asset manager move the needle on that number? And is there a way using research to create governance on how you serve clients, when you serve clients and what clients you serve to get those numbers? Similarly, you, you can look at things or how do we upgrade a client to a new level of service maybe before they reach that blunt instrument, $1 million liquid assets festival number. But maybe we want to get to a client before they have a million. Maybe we want to get them when they have 500000 and they need advice more and they'll be the relationship will be stronger. 
rather than saying, hey, no, you're just a retail branch kind of guy because you don't have a million dollars, which is what's going on in Canada right now, right? Yeah, the big hard stop number. You don't qualify for X service until you get to $1 above a certain yeah. threshold. And uh, by then you may have completely, you, you may have dropped the ball compared to someone else who's willing to basically say, no, this is ridiculous. This is a growth client and we can service them now and provide them with the level of service yeah, they exactly. deserve. And then maybe some clients are better suited to like a, just a simple robo-advisor tool. It's going to help them save. And maybe other clients can take on different kinds of products. And you've worked in advice. Some clients are just not going to work with you. They're just sad to say, but they're not going to be the kind of client that's going to work with you and build wealth. And I'm sure you'd let me know on the first day which client is that client and which client is the client that really is going to work with you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, we, we tend to be very, very selective and very concerned about fit when we bring clients on board because you can spend the same amount of effort with someone who's going to be there for six months as someone who's going to be there for 10 years. So we try to make sure that's a very positive fit. And frankly, I'd say anything that would help us better understand whether or not they are a fit for us would be definitely a yeah, value exactly. to us. And it's not, it doesn't have to be a negative thing for the client. It's kind of like practicing in the preliminaries. Maybe the client just needs to go back and learn that savings discipline. And, and there's automation we can help them with around that. And maybe when they learn to walk, they mm -hmm. can start running, right? You know, one of the areas that, you know, this is going to sound ridiculously geeky. One of the areas that kind of excites me is, you know, you talk about strength and compliance on your website. And frankly, this is something that I've always looked at as a wonderful opportunity for AI. Can you uh, speak to how that yeah, works? I mean, the, the honest truth is we're not going radically deep in terms of compliance on the AI side. What we are doing mm -hmm. is just if you have a policy and you have people, how do you make sure that those people live up to the policy? Right. So. I talk about this a lot, you know, because again, we have these big institutions like doing space jazz with the 100 PhD, like science experiment that gets the headline. And then there's maybe stuff in terms of, of basics and preliminaries that we're not handling. So for us, it's a matter of being able to encode compliance policy in a way that becomes living. And so the machine's going to catch if something's missed. It's going to lob that to the frontline worker. And then if the frontline worker uh, doesn't get that, it's going to get lobbed to the overseer. But I mean, yeah, just just even that simple discussion there, the number of productivity gain <laughs> implementations that exist in that one sentence is enormous, right? I mean, the big frustration and I talk about in this podcast more than once is the compliance burden we all deal with. And, you know, some of it's rightly so, some of it's a little <coughs> misguided, but the time and productivity losses to something to the effect of, oh, you know, I failed to get this client's initial on page 36 of 112 or whatever it is. And that's not done. You know, anything that where the, where the digital back end can basically step in and help us make sure that everything's taken care of properly. Those are small gains individually, huge gains at scale. Yeah. So very much looking forward to how that gets implemented. So in terms of your vision for the future of how this is going to go uh, in terms of your, your company and the industry in general, what, what do you see in your crystal ball? So in terms of our journey or like or, or in terms of your company's journey going forward, what is your vision and goal for responsive and how do you think that plays with how the industry is going to evolve as well yeah for us i mean our goal really is look we think as i mentioned and it's pretty obvious we think that wealth management's changing and there's a question about how it's changing and that's a question not just about like how do i david washell be super right about the future of wealth management and the smartest guy in the room it's really a question of like how do i understand how wealth enterprises can help their clients succeed and we can really create a better business all around for everybody involved, for all the stakeholders, to provide advice that really actually grows wealth. And I think certainly over the past 20 years, and I don't mean to get too kumbaya on you, 
but we've seen the give and take of capital markets on people's lives and housing markets, and that's all part of that. And so for me, there's just a really meaningful question around, we have this technology, we have these great new things, we can use them to make ourselves feel special, or we can use them to really add value to regular people's lives. So for us, the goal here is to learn as much as possible about wealth management as a relationship between clients and advisors, and to do the best we can to create software that's going to enhance that relationship for the better. Excellent. And what about all that excites you? Like, What's the big get for you that you're really excited about working in on this um, project? I think wealth management can be really frustrating for everybody involved, for the client who's putting their money on the line and, and trusting the advisor. And for the advisor who, as you mentioned, is burdened by so many things like compliance and really wants to make it a success, I think what process automation and AI provides with is a chance for that, that dream of wealth management to really come true, to be there and provide great advice, to sweep away all of the work that subtracts from the high value stuff, and to really create better outcomes for clients. And I think there isn't an advisor in the world, I hope, and I believe at some level, that doesn't want their client to have good outcomes. And I think that's why we're all here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you are not creating the Skynet of financial advisory to put us all out of business. You are basically creating the Android friend who's going to basically do a lot of the work for us, which I'm sure will put a lot of people listening to this podcast at ease and make them hopefully more interested yeah, in what so. it is you're doing. I think there's this, this military model in the US of the, of the Centaur and, and Gary Kasparov, the chess player, talks about this. Human beings using AI tools will outperform raw AI or raw human beings. And I think it's just it's the best trade for the next at least 10 years. Well, it's interesting. I, I completely agree with you. And it was a camera which commentator who said it and said that the, the lesson of AI in the last 10 years has been that uh, what we consider simple is actually really hard for computers. And what we consider hard is actually very simple for computers. So when you take that into consideration, pairing human with technology is far more leveraging than people uh, made it exactly. out to be initially. And there's always AI winters. And I think we're headed for a very short AI winter in the next three years where the hype kind of fizzles and people realize that, yeah, we have convolutional nets that can recognize cats, but we don't have things with situational awareness <laughs> that, that can solve complex heterogeneous problems and transfer learning and all these kinds of things. That's coming. There'll be short-term uh, disappointment, I think. So do you think that's largely due just simply to the over-promise and over-marketing of some of these solutions? Or is it just, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I think it's a little bit. I think because AI and technology is always a roar shark culturally. And don't get me wrong, like DeepMind and, and, and these robotics firms, they're doing like absolutely radically incredible things. An old friend of mine, David Salinger, once says that, you know, AI right now kind of has the intellect of like a cockroach. It doesn't have any situational awareness. So sometimes we can get that cockroach to do really cool things like play video games and be a robot that walks around a room. But there's not really a there there in terms of sense making and world making and internal linguistic representations and advanced attention and an advanced relationship with memory. So people are working on those problems in little toy worlds, but we're just yeah. we're just not there yet. It'll come. There are great people working on these problems um, that you're not hearing about that aren't in the headlines, but it will come. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all, you hear the word AI, we get the first thing that jumps to people's minds is the Hollywood version of it. It's the, you know, the data Android or the, the various number of movies that come out about dystopian futures on this sort of thing where you have general purpose AI and these robots are basically functioning the same way that any human being would and, you know, to the point of bearing emotions and whatever. But really, 
yeah, I mean, what we're experiencing in this data is narrow purpose AI, where, you know, we have the Tesla car driving us home rather efficiently, not 100% correct. We have the ability to data mine, we have the ability to play Go and all those things. And that can't be discounted as to how incredibly complex it was to solve those problems. But I generally agree with you, the entire kind of general belief of how just intuitive this stuff is going to be, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, no, not and, at all. And, and there's a lot of its trends too, like, 12 years ago or even 15 years ago, if you told an AI practitioner that like neural nets were going to be the future of machine learning, most people would laugh at you. Neural nets were kind of like a funny, wacky paradigm from the 70s and then a bit in the 90s. And there's there's just a seasonality to the methodologies used and the trends used. And I don't think deep nets are going away. I think they're now just such an important methodology and and they're a very clear way of understanding perception and and decision-making. But the stuff you're going to see development around is going to be around sort of cognitive architectures and planning and decision making and representation of the world, right? So having rich representations of the world, to bring it back to what we're talking about, wealth management is a very complex, heterogeneous decision space that involves so many things all the way down to like what your client's face looks like when you're having lunch with them and you ask them a particular question. That piece of information is going to get back into an advisor's decision process. And you just, that kind of situational awareness is just not, we're not there yet with AI. That's, that's very true. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it really is those little things that it could be the very, very difficult chasm for them to cross and understand, understand that context. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in overall, I think the, I'm excited by the people like you and what you're doing because I look at the ability to leverage that sort of thing in my business. And, and really, I mean, what your focuses are on is the pain points of this business. They're not really the stuff that people enjoy. I mean, most people say that, one of the things they enjoy, things they enjoy in their business, this business are usually limited to a couple of things. You know, the people or the customer relationship is usually near the top of the list for most of them. Some of them, it's the research and whatnot. But in terms of what you guys are focusing on, clearly you're focusing on the stuff that basically is what gets exactly. in our way. I mean, and that's because we think that AI should help everybody have a, a better time, <laughs> right? If it's if it's not helping us have a better life and a better time, then what's the point of it? <laughs> like, what's the point of it? Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, what's the point of it? Good. Great. Well, any parting thoughts for the listeners before we, yeah, uh, leave um, episode? we really want to talk to everybody, hear their thoughts and ideas, especially in Canada. We love our home and native land. So if you're from a small shop, get in touch. We can talk about simple bread and butter stuff around just getting your practice up and running, getting rid of all those frictions that just put pain in living. If you're from a big institution, let's talk about a pilot where we explore integrated research in the wealth management channel that's suited for wealth management and wealth management alone. Fantastic. Thank you for taking the time, Thanks, David. Jason. Very much appreciated. So that was David Watchell of Responsive AI. I hope you found that one informative. And frankly, uh, the artificial intelligence stuff he's talking about is still very early stage, but quite frankly, already going to make our lives a lot easier if we effectively implement it. And I am very excited for the future of what all this can hold. And Thank you once again for joining us on Fintech Impact. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And feel free to email me at uh, jason at fintechimpact.co. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.